0: This episode is brought to you in part by Harvest House Publishers and the new book, The Good Gift of Weakness. Discover how human weakness not only allows God's strength to shine, but it was all by His design. The Good Gift of Weakness is now available wherever books are sold.
1: Hey everyone, you're listening to Quick to Listen. Each week we go beyond hashtags and hot takes and set aside time to explore the reality behind a major cultural event. Today, we're talking about whether Protestants need to do more to honor Mary, the mother of Jesus. My co-host as always, Mark Galley.
2: Hello, good to be here.
1: Did I identify myself? I don't know. I'm an assistant editor. My name is Morgan Lee.
2: And I'm the editor-in-chief of Christianity Today, Mark Galley.
1: Mark, who is joining us this week?
2: Good friend, Timothy George, longtime uh, advisor to Christianity Today. He's one of those people we, um, we look to when we want to have something definitive to say about classic evangelical doctrine. It's Timothy George. He's the dean of Beeson Divinity School. How long have you been there, Timothy?
3: A long time, 28 years.
2: 28 years. That's about as long as I've been here at CT. I've been 27, so there you go. Wait, how old am I? (laughs) There you go.
1: (laughs) (laughs) So why did you ask Timothy to come on a show for Classic Evangelical Doctrine if we're talking about Mary?
2: Well, he wrote uh, one of the finest articles on this topic for Christianity Today, I think it was 2004, or might have been earlier, and I also saw, I was reminded of a review uh, he did in First Things around 2007, 2008, because just at that time, two books came out by evangelicals on why we ought to, as Protestants, honor Mary more, and so, as far as I'm concerned, Timothy is the expert on Protestantism and Mary in, in the world today.
1: Welcome, Timothy. We're glad that you're here. So let's kind of give our listeners a sense of why we're talking about the subject this week. So earlier this month, the Catholic Church observed the Feast of the Immaculate Conception or this doctrine that Mary was not tainted by original sin. And the celebration falls in the middle of Advent, which together with the Christmas season usually kicks off kind of that one time of year that us Protestants pay a bit more attention to Mary, as much of her story in the Bible overlaps with that of the birth of Jesus. So part of Protestant disinterest stems from our esteem of the Bible and the fact that much of the mythology of Mary goes beyond what's there, or in some places seems to contradict it. Um, And in addition to our beliefs that she was conceived without sin, many Catholics believe that Mary was perpetually a virgin and was taken into heaven without actually physically dying. We're going to dive into all of those issues, whether evangelicals can embrace Mary without adopting all this other doctrine that the Catholic Church believes and what it would look like to honor her. But before we do that, I really want to have this gut check about how we felt about this idea of the doctrine of or the belief of the Immaculate Conception. Mark, maybe you can say a little bit about when you first heard about this and what your immediate reactions were to it?
2: Well, I can't remember when I when I could say I first heard about it. Uh, it just doesn't make sense with the rest of the Incarnation for me, that Jesus would have to be born from a woman who was absolutely unstained from sin, but then could little, leave a life absolutely in touch and actually touching people who were sinners the whole rest of his life. So it doesn't make sense. I understand the piety behind it, but I just am confused by its the, the underlying theology.
1: So I first heard about it when I was in Catholic school, in high school, perhaps like other Protestants. I don't know. I thought that the Mac- piece of the immaculate conception related to Jesus somehow, and then I learned that it actually related to Mary, and then I was very confused because I had never heard anything remotely suggesting that Mary was in some way less like us humans that Jesus came to save. To be honest, I thought it was kind of strange and weird, and one way that I did feel divided from Catholic doctrine in ways that I didn't necessarily feel that separation on other issues. So it it left me very like puzzled. Timothy as we get into this broader discussion here I'm wondering if we can just start by you giving us an overview of where these kind of like extra biblical beliefs about Mary came from or if Catholics to be fair if Catholics think they're extra biblical
3: you know Catholics have an understanding of the development of doctrine so do Protestants but we understand that development in very different ways and so Catholics would say everything they believe about Mary is somehow or other rooted and grounded in something that's in the Bible so for example the Immaculate Conception you all were just talking about there's a word a Greek big Greek word in Luke that talks about Mary as caritomene, uh, which we usually translate full of grace. Well, uh, what does that really mean? Well, does it mean that she has absolutely no stain of sin whatsoever from the very beginning of her conception? So that's how the Immaculate Conception is derived by Catholics from that one word. When Protestants look at this, it seems to us that, you know, there's a lot of lot of stuff here, baggage, we might say, that is drawn out by Catholics in the tradition that we really don't find in Scripture. It, it seems extra biblical to us in a way that it wouldn't be so offensive to Catholics.
1: What about some of these other beliefs? The one that was most confusing to me I actually had a personal experience where I asked my theology teacher in my Catholic school about this belief that Mary didn't have any other children. And I remember Proof texting him and being like, Look, this is the passage where it talks about Jesus' brothers and sisters. We didn't really go anywhere in that conversation. It we was just like, well, this is the Catholic teaching.
3: That's a teaching. This this whole question of the perpetual virginity of Mary was was Jesus her only baby. The Bible does speak about brothers, and so the question is, what does that word really mean? Could it also mean maybe cousins? Could it refer perhaps to the children of Joseph by previous marriage, etc. Cetera, etc.? Cetera? These are things that were debated long ago. Saint Jerome had a big Vigorous debate about this uh, in his lifetime. And so uh, this this is not a new issue. And I would say I wouldn't put that issue myself, Mark may disagree here, on the same level as I would theologically an issue like the Immaculate Conception which sort of gets to the question of is Mary a sinner was she redeemed by Christ uh, could she pray the lord's prayer forgive us our sins i think the answer to those questions are yes but the question of whether or not you know mary you know had other babies uh who the brothers were were they cousins it seems to me that's that's a different level issue in my mind
2: uh the thing that i found interesting reading up on this is uh, how the Reformers, I think both Calvin and Luther, believed in the perpetual virginity of Mary. Am I correct on that?
3: Yes, and so did Zwingli, surprisingly.
2: Yeah, so this isn't exactly an anti-Protestant doctrine. It's uh, it's subject to another, I guess, set of uh, criteria by which we try to evaluate whether it, it makes sense or not.
1: Can I just say, I, just, I don't understand that belief, like she got married, so that... Just didn't make any sense to me. Why? But yeah.
2: Why don't you explain to us why virginity is such a high moral state for Catholics? It it does seem to be throughout their history, it's a stellar virtue for a woman to have, and especially for the for Mary to have.
3: There are in the Bible virgins. I mean, they're referred to a number of different times, and and women who have special calling from God. Widows now they're not virgins, but they have a very special calling of God. Celibacy uh, that's a big deal for men as well as women in the Catholic tradition. And so in some people's minds, it's all related to what is supposed to be the sinfulness of sexuality. And so Mary couldn't possibly, you know, have ever had marital relations, even with Joseph, and still have been above reproach and sin in every kind of way. Now, again, when we get into thinking that way, it seems we're moving well beyond the biblical evidence.
1: Do we want to talk about the assumption of Mary into
3: heaven? Well, the assumption of Mary, uh, first of all, we need to say, I think, uh, just for clarification, that these two teachings we're talking about, in particular, the Immaculate Conception, that Mary was conceived without the stain of original sin, that's what that means, that was only approved as a dogma by the church in 1854, and it was highly debated, really right through the Middle Ages. It was John Duns Scotus who gave the first clear affirmation of that in a way that was compelling to the Catholic Church. Now, the bodily assumption teaches that Mary was taken up into heaven without experiencing physical uh, death, without, without uh, body and soul. She was assumed into heaven. You know, A lot of evangelicals believe in the rapture of the church. Well, this was just sort of applied to Mary. She was raptured into heaven uh, without death. Again, is there anything in the Bible that would indicate this could possibly be true? Most Protestants find nothing whatsoever. There is a text in Revelation 12 that refers to this heavenly woman with stars in her head and around the crown. And that's often sort of typologically said to be a reference to Mary, who who was seen in heaven. But uh, you have to go several layers into the interpretation of Revelation before you get to that conclusion. So in 1950, That was the year I was born, folks, in 1950.
2: So there's two major historical events that year.
3: (laughs) (laughs) The church finally got around to saying the bodily assumption was a dogma of the church to be believed by all. So these are relatively recent doctrines in the long history of the Catholic Church, which doesn't mean they're necessarily wrong, but it should give us pause in thinking about how we evaluate.
2: Well, but they would argue that While they are officially promulgated on 1854 and 1950, the Catholic laity have believed them for centuries. I I don't know how, how true that is, but it's certainly true to some
3: extent. These have been popular beliefs among a lot of Catholics for a long time. That's certainly true. But they've also been disputed beliefs. For example, Saint Thomas Aquinas, who's a pretty good, not a very slouchy Catholic theologian, he denied vigorously the Immaculate Conception. And and so these are things that you know have gone back and forth in Catholic teaching.
2: I think the one thing that troubles me about troubles is a little too strong, because at a level of piety and devotion, one can uh, one can appreciate uh, a person's yearning to believe the Immaculate Conception, perpetual virginity, Assumption of Mary. But it does seem to be, a, uh, to me, at in, in another level, it, it works against the practice of the Catholic faith, as I've seen it in many instances. And that is where Catholics will have a much more sense of identity with Mary than they will with Jesus. Jesus is the person who, especially in the Middle Ages, you see Jesus uh, pictured in the Middle Ages as a judge standing over and against humanity, and Mary is the person that, that people appeal to. Uh, Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners now and in the hour of our death. But on the other hand, these doctrines work against us identifying with Mary, because she, she never sins, she never has sex, and she never actually dies. So she's nothing like us mm. whatsoever. <laughs> Even Jesus is more like us than
3: that. A great point. I mean, the question is, is Mary more on the side of the divine, of God, or more on the side of the human person? And I think Protestants reading the New Testament say, here is a woman indeed well chosen, and uh, uniquely chosen by God. That's one thing we have to say. Mary is different from every other human being in the world in that she is the one human being in whom God chose to dwell literally, physically, incarnationally. We have to give her all that credit. All generations should call her blessed. But at the end of the day, we have to say Mary is our sister in our common humanity.
1: There's something to me that's more extraordinary about the incarnation, if we believe that believe in Mary's ordinariness.
3: I
2: suppose Timothy, and, and that there would be a divide among Protestants as to whether Mary did something in her life to deserve this honor, or whether it it was a sheer act of grace that she was chosen.
3: Yeah, well, Catholics say that it was a sheer act of grace. I mean that that's there's no doubt here. In fact, that's. That's the one strong theological motive behind the Immaculate Conception. I think every Orthodox Christian should buy into she was chosen, she was graced by God, and we would say uniquely so. It's not that you know she merited the right to become the mother. No she was chosen by God and and this is she was in fact in Catholic theology predestinated by God now I've, I know I've used a big word, but it's in the Bible. Catholics apply it to Mary in a unique way. she was absolutely predestinated by god to be the mother of jesus apart from any works or merits of her own it's surely by grace and on that focus that god's gift in jesus this great act of self-giving grace uh, we have to agree with that
2: i just would have assumed some uh, someone would have thought up the idea well she was sinless that's why she was picked for this but i guess not even in catholic doctrine that's taught
3: that's how pelagianism sneaks in the back door but yeah exactly uh, it's not good orthodox teaching okay
2: well, maybe we could spend some time then on the positive side, because you just yeah. you started that very well.
3: We've been saying all these things we don't believe about Mary, and we have to say them because they're out there, and, and Catholics and Protestants have these deep-seated differences. But what in my reading about Mary, how I kind of got into this was saying, look, well, what does the Bible say about Mary? And I found the Bible says a lot more about Mary than a lot of us good evangelical Protestants are want to say about her. And a part of what it says is that, you know, she was uniquely chosen by God to be the mother of our Lord. And and one of the terms that was developed early in the church to talk about this, totally biblical, I think, is mother of God. There's nothing wrong. In fact, every good Protestant, I think, ought to use that language. The, the Greek word is theotokos the one who gives birth to the one who is God. And this right, comes right out of Luke, where, where Mary talks about my, my Savior, my God. She is the mother of God. And that's a way, not so much of exalting Mary, because that's how it will sound in a lot of Protestant ears, that Mary is a kind of goddess. No, it's not a way of exalting Mary. It's a way of honoring Jesus Christ. And because Jesus Christ is fully human, Mary is the mother of of he who was the eternal second person of the Godhead, not the mother of the Trinity, as is sometimes said, but the mother of the one who was the Son of God. The place to start, and at this uh, blessed Christmas season of the year, we're grown there anyway, are the Gospels, especially Luke and Matthew, which tell us more about Jesus' birth and infancy. Uh, the Magnificat, this great hymn that Mary sings, she just bursts into song. Uh, that That's one of the great texts, I think, in all of the Bible to talk about the prophetic role of Mary. Uh, Mary was, let's remember, the first proclaimer of the gospel in a way. Uh, Mary was the first disciple of Jesus in a way. And so she's a model for, for all Christian believers. Now, there are two verses I w- I'd like to lift out because it seemed to me there are two places in the New Testament where Mary says the absolute greatest thing you'll ever find. One of them is her response to the Annunciation when the angel Gabriel comes to visit her in Nazareth and tells her that you know she's been chosen to be the mother of the Messiah, da, 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 and she says, let it be unto me according to your will. What a great statement, a statement of surrender to the will of God. I don't think any Christian could find any better response to what God is saying than that. Let it be unto me according to your word. And then again in the Gospel of John, there's not a whole lot about Mary in John, but there, there are two things that are really important. One is the wedding in Cana of Galilee. We read about this in John 2, Jesus' first miracle. And you remember they were wa- wondering about what they should do in the, the water, and the, there was a shortage of wine at the, at the meal. And then Mary speaks to the servants who are carrying the water pots, and she says, whatever Jesus says to you, do it. Well, again, what a great text. Whatever Jesus says to you, that's what you should do. I think those are two of the great texts for Christian discipleship anywhere in the Bible.
0: This episode is brought to you by Church Law and Tax. Church Law and Tax understands the realities of church work, helping thousands of churches stay informed and get equipped with comprehensive resources on legal, tax financial and risk management matters do you have a question on housing allowance need information on selecting church insurance looking for insights on what is or isn't unrelated business income or how about some guidance on how to properly receive charitable contributions churchlawandtax.com equips you for success with access to the most respected and knowledgeable attorneys accountants financial advisors and risk managers guiding churches today Get the practical information and timely coverage you need to keep your church up to date and lead your ministry with confidence join churchlawandtax.com today
2: i think this is where uh, in some protestant circles especially in evangelical circles there is a, a rightful critique that a lot of the examples of faith that have, that are preached about and talked about are male figures peter mm-hmm. and john mm. and uh, paul and i do think this is where the catholics have one up on us they have the, the their great figure of christian discipleship really is mary for these two and these two examples are absolutely perfect and yeah. it would do us well to spend more time on those two passages in particular and remind ourselves that the first great disciple of the lord was in fact his mother and this puts a twist on the phrase full of grace because it's not that she's full of grace apart from jesus in the sense she's literally full of grace because the fullness of grace is within her, I suppose.
3: Yeah. And along uh, another area where there's really no division between Catholics and Protestants, unless you're talking about some very liberal, woozy Protestants, and that is that Mary was a virgin, uh, the virgin birth, you know, the virginal conception of Jesus. I know that was hotly debated in the early 20th century among some Protestants. But, I mean, that's a part of our common Christian belief. The other two places in the New Testament where Mary is so important is near the end of Jesus' life uh, and the beginning of the church in Acts. In, in In the Gospel of John, there is Mary beneath the cross. And I think that's one of the great images of Mary. They're faithful to the end beneath the cross of Jesus. And there's that exchange between John, behold your mother, and woman, behold your son. And, of course, Catholics interpret John there as representing the church, and so the church has a special relationship to Mary, according to Catholics, because of that. The point I want to mention is that she assumed the role of a suffering disciple. And I think today in the world, when so many Christians are suffering, are being persecuted for their faith, we can identify with the figure of Mary beneath the cross. And then in Acts 2, there she is in the upper room with the other apostles and disciples waiting for the coming of the Holy Spirit. And in the Eastern Orthodox Church, this is how Mary is always portrayed. You don't have this tradition of iconography in the East that we do in the West, where Mary is sort of alone, or Mary and... and. Uh, Holding the baby Jesus, Madonna and child. In the East, Mary is always there with the disciples. It's the upper room. And it seems to me that's a better way for us to understand Mary too. Not isolated from the church, but very much in the heart of the church and calling others to follow with her the Lord Jesus Christ.
2: They do give us a good excuse to talk about her more than at Advent and Christmas time. Obviously, uh, all through Lent and Easter, especially for the for being her being at the cross.
1: Is there any part of you that's skeptical, Mark? Though
2: no, actually, I uh, I am very I am very sympathetic to Timothy's uh, discussion here. I'm an Anglican myself, so we kind of dabble in some of these things anyway. Uh, like you, I was raised a Catholic, and I still remember you know the Hail Mary by heart. And there's something I find deeply sympathetic with. The notion that we would um, give more honor to Mary, because I do think it would solve some practical pastoral problems right now, especially with the concern of many women that there aren't enough women heroes of the faith for us to look up to, when in fact, in my view, the greatest hero of the faith in the New Testament is probably Mary.
1: Yeah. So one clarification, only went to Catholic high school, but was raised evangelical, oh, okay. which is why I was correcting my theology each Okay. Year. So yeah, I want to get into that a little bit, about like what it would practically look like for Protestants to better venerate Mary, if that's the right word. Partially because the way that the Catholic Church has chosen to honor Mary is very, well, I don't know if hands-on is the right word, but there is an application, whether it's a prayer that is said out loud or the fact that the rosary is associated with it, or even I just think about all the art that really puts Mary on display?
3: Well, you know, the Catholics make this distinction between what they call dulia, which is only worship of God. Only God is subject to that. And then they use this hyperdulia. That's a kind of veneration or respect that is given to Mary and the other saints, especially to Mary, though. Well, I I I find that helpful. I mean, we have to distinguish Mary from the Savior. Mary is not a Savioress. She is not the one who died on the cross for our sins. And therefore, Jesus, she can't be in competition with Jesus. There's one God, one mediator between God and man. Paul says that, and that is Jesus Christ. Catholics say that, too, and they make this distinction between worship of God and veneration of Mary. Well, I think Mary should be honored. Mary should, if you want to use the word venerated, fine with me, highly respected. We, I think we should say we love Mary, Mary, the mother of Jesus. It's a way of loving Jesus to love his mother. Is she in heaven? yes. Does she know what's going on here on earth? We don't know, it seems to me. I'm not against the idea that, you know, I think we need all the prayers we can get. And if Mary and the Saints can pray for us, all the better. There's just nothing in the Bible that says that is true or that we should be seeking their prayers. And so we have to say, yes, but to some of these things. Now, I do think there are ways evangelicals and Protestants can honor and remember Mary, mostly by just going back to Scripture, some of those passages we were talking about earlier and others, by looking at how Mary actually functioned in the life of Jesus and how she cared for him uh, during his earthly life. I think those are things we we can honor. Mary as, as a disciple of the Word. This is how Luther saw Mary, handmaiden of the Word, and often in medieval art, she's pictured with a Bible in her hand. She was a student of Scripture. And so we can learn a lot from Mary as the handmaiden of the Word and, and follow that as well. I say we don't pray to Mary, but we can learn to pray like Mary. And we can learn to pray with Mary also and with all the saints. That's a good thing. It's a Protestant thing, it's an evangelical thing.
2: Is it praying to Mary to say, Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners now at the hour of our death. Is that praying to Mary, or is that asking Mary to pray with us?
3: What what you're quoting there is a very traditional prayer. Luther and Zwingli prayed the first part of that prayer. Oh, okay. That's just the Bible. I mean, you know, that's in the the gospel. It's when you get to pray for us sinners now in the hour of our death. That was added after the Reformation by a certain order called the Carthusians. That is not a a medieval or even a Reformation. It's a post-Reformation addition to the Hail Mary. The first part of the Hail Mary, I see no reason we couldn't pray it. And I I will confess, I pray it myself, because in doing so, I'm simply repeating the words of the scriptures. So that's what I mean. We pray with Mary, and we can pray like Mary, with her humility, her submission to God, let it be unto me according to your word. But I'm not at the point in my pilgrimage of faith and understanding the Bible that I can pray to Mary. I think that's a bridge too far.
2: I think I am a. I'm a little more sympathetic to the idea as an Anglican. The doctrine of the communion of, of saints uh, suggests to me that the saints uh, who have gone before us are alive and well and are participating in fellowship in heaven and at some level participate in the fellowship with us on earth, especially during worship. It only seems perfectly logical that I can ask Morgan to pray for me. I can also ask Mary or Peter or Paul to pray for me. So theologically, and I'm speaking logically, I think that makes sense. I will say spiritually and personally, I, that's a really hard thing for me to do. It just seems to me once I'm in a position of prayer... I feel like why not go to the big man himself directly? <laughs>
3: <laughs> the place, Mark, where I feel closer to what you're describing is at the Lord's Supper, communion. It seems to me there is at communion a gathering of all God's people, and it's a foretaste of the heavenly banquet that we will certainly share with all who have gone before us. It's just a question of access and biblical warrant. And you have to remember, you guys, uh, I mean, Mark, you're an Anglican. I love Anglicans. We have a lot of them around Beeson Divinity School. But, you know, I'm, I'm just an old-fashioned ornery Southern Baptist. And Thank God my, there's
2: a few of those left.
3: <laughs> in my tradition, that, that's just a little difficult. But at communion, I sense what you're talking about.
1: I just wanted to remind everyone... Quick to Listen is made possible by people that subscribe to Christianity Today magazine. So thank you all of you out there who subscribe to this 10 times a year. If you subscribe, you will get a print magazine in your mailbox, and it is full of redemptive and honest coverage of people, events, and ideas that are shaping the church and culture. We charge you a dollar per issue if you subscribe via orderct.com slash quick to listen, and your subscription boosts our podcast and also really supports our work. Work.
2: A dollar an issue. That is just so incredibly cheap nowadays.
1: Yes. If you are looking for a Christmas present for someone who wants something thoughtful and interesting pertaining to the Christian faith, please, 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 you can order a bunch of subscriptions at orderct.com slash quick to listen.
2: Actually, because of the price, it's on the order of a stocking stuffer, and you should be able to afford a lot of those.
1: $10, people. All right, Timothy, you had something you wanted to share as we wrap.
3: Well, I've been a part of a group called Evangelicals and Catholics Together. started over 20 years ago by two great friends who are now in the company of the blessed. Uh, Richard John Newhouse, he was a Catholic priest, and Chuck Colson, he was an evangelical leader. And we we get together, Catholics and Protestant theologians, really to bat around these issues, but also to pray together. We did a statement on Mary, the blessed evangelical Mary. And at the end of it, was, said, wouldn't it be great if we could come up with a prayer that we could conscientiously, both Catholics and Protestants, offer on this topic? And here's what, we, here's what the prayer we, we did and i would i would suggest it and recommend it almighty and gracious god father of our lord jesus christ who was in the fullness of time born of the blessed virgin mary from whom he received our human nature by which through his suffering death and glorious resurrection he won our salvation Accept, we beseech you our giving thanks for the witness of mary's faith and the courage of her obedience Grant to us, we pray, the faithfulness to stand with her by the cross of your Son in his redemptive suffering and the suffering of your pilgrim church here on earth. By the gift of your Spirit, increase within us a lively sense of our communion in your Son with the saints on earth and the saints in heaven. May she who is the first disciple be for us a model of faith's response to your will in all things. May her let it be with me according to your word be our constant prayer may her do whatever he tells you elicit from us a more perfect surrender of obedience to her lord and to ours continue to lead us we pray into a more manifest unity of faith and life so that the world may believe and those whom you have chosen, may with the Blessed Virgin Mary and all the saints rejoice forever in your glory. This we ask in the name of Jesus Christ, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God forever and ever. Amen. Amen.
2: That is a beautiful prayer.
1: Thank you so much for sharing that with us, Timothy. As we wrap our discussion right now, I just invite everyone to continue the conversation with us on CT Podcast. We're also on Facebook at facebook.com slash ctpodcast. If you're in the car driving to some sort of holiday family event, you can still pick up your smartphone and tell us what you think. While you're doing that. So now it's time for the segment of the show that we call Precious Moments, and that gives everyone here a chance to shout out one person or thing that is giving them joy this week. And also, we ask people to share where they can follow them online. So, Timothy, here.
3: Well, I just want to say uh, a very Merry Christmas to everybody and thank God for the gift of His Son, Jesus Christ, and for bringing us to know Him and His Mother, Mary. We thank God for her, too.
1: Do you have any Christmas plans this weekend?
3: Stay close and snug by the fireplace. (laughs) Reading good literature, like Christianity Today.
1: Where's the best place for people to find some of the stuff that you do?
3: com will get you most anything that I have written or thought about lately.
1: And we will also, Timothy wrote, as Mark said earlier, a cover story for us about Mary that we will post to in the show description as well. Mark?
2: Uh, This week, uh, I would resonate with uh, Timothy's acclamation of the blessedness of this season. It's extra blessed for my wife and I because all our children will be huddled around the home nest starting I guess one has arrived, and uh, another couple are arriving today with their children. And so it, it ought to be a very blessed familial Christmas.
1: And Mark, where can people keep up with you?
2: Oh, yeah. We publish something here at the offices called The Galley Report, in which I link to four or five articles a week that I have found interesting. Uh, and you can get that by going to christianitytoday.com slash Report and sign up. It's absolutely free.
1: So this weekend, my family is coming in, and I am the fun maker I guess my dad has basically put me in charge of like every restaurant we're going to go to and we're going to have a Christmas Eve party and have to decide all these things. So I am actually kind of stressed right now. I don't know. You we'll don't look stressed. Thank you.
2: But I know you must be stressed because that's my wife's role generally in our family gatherings.
1: I'm like looking forward to having them in Chicago and it warmed up because I think they were like terrified when it was zero last weekend, but I just want to make sure that everyone is going to have fun. So I don't know. Maybe we'll go ice skating or something. There's a couple of places to ice skate for free that are downtown. Everyone can find me on MEPAYNL. That's me on Twitter or Instagram. All right. Thank you, everyone, for listening to another episode of Quick to Listen. This is a production of Christianity Today, and you can find our other podcast by searching iTunes for Christianity Today. If you want to subscribe, please subscribe and have your friends subscribe as well. order slash quick to listen to subscribe for our lowest price. And the show is produced by Richard Clark and Cray Allred. And you can find the show on iTunes and SoundCloud or wherever you get your podcasts. But please make sure to rate it because that really helps us a lot. We will see you all next week. And trust me, you're going to like next week. Merry Christmas. Bye.